What I'd like to preach on today is something I've had on my heart before, but it's never, never made it here. Um, so hopefully today's the right day. I think that it is. If you'd like to turn with me, I'll be in Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. And as a way of introducing this, and as you're turning there, I want to remind us that names are very important. I had a whole sermon on this titled, What's in a Name? It's available online if you'd like to listen to it. They were more important in older times than they are now, but names are important. And we lost a very dear sister this week, who, as I mentioned, was probably one of the best representations of someone who has the fruits of the Spirit and lives that out that I know. She lived a very good testimony of the love she had for her Lord and the way that she loved others for, get this, 36,868 days. Just 20 days shy of 101 years. And her name is Beulah. And we find that word once in the scriptures. We're going to read it. Now, depending on your translation, you may not see it as Beulah, but I'm going to read from the King James because that's how it translates it. So follow with me, if you will. Isaiah chapter 62, first five verses. It says, For Zion's sake I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all the kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory in the land of the Lord, and a royal diadem in his hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hezepah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Now, as I mentioned in many translations, that word is no longer translated Beulah. And many of you, it may have been translated as marriage, which is a closer translation to that word. In fact, that's what the word actually means. So if we look at the term or the word Beulah, it's what's called a transliteration. I just want to pause here for just a minute because this is actually important for us. And it may seem that I'm getting a little too complex, a little too high and mighty, but for many of you all, it's not. And if you don't 
know or understand that term or how it works and how we translate scriptures, it's part of the deeper things that we do need to know. And so for anyone who knows anything about another language, which is uh, in this country very few of us, to be perfectly honest, but if you try to learn, you realize there's not always a word-for-word translation possibility. The Greek language, which much of the New Testament was written in, and the Hebrew language that much of the Old Testament was written in, were both very rich and complex languages. And I'm thankful for that. Because what it does is provide endless amount of studying and very deep meanings to the words. English, especially when English was first getting started and we translated the scriptures to English, wasn't as rich of a language and isn't even today. And so sometimes you couldn't really translate specifically one word to another. You had to transliterate, which is kind of uh, adjust a word to look or sound like the original because we didn't have a word for that in English. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, The word apostle is transliterated, and it means one who is sent. So it's important that we understand the meanings of these words. The word angel actually means messenger. Baptism, get ready for this to be offensive to some people, actually means immersion. That's actually what it means. It means to be immersed underwater. I'll leave that one alone for today. Christ means anointed one. It's also a transliteration. Church, we transliterated this one twice. The original Greek word is ekklesia, which means an assembly of those who are called out for a specific purpose. That got transliterated into kirchik, which is more of a uh, German-based word, which is where we get the word today, church. And the closest thing to actually the word church, it's in the Bible, is only mentioned twice, and we've completely lost the meaning for what it means. I've preached on that before. Another word we commonly translate as deacon which just simply means servant. So understanding that I'm not calling the scripture incorrect, I'm not calling it an error or in fault, but I'm wanting us to understand that when we say the term Beulah in the King James, it has a very specific meaning. And to understand and rightly divide the word of God, we must study to understand it. And so sometimes this makes it maybe a little frustrating, but as I mentioned earlier, it means that you can study for the rest of your life and unpack the beauty that's within the scripture. So Beulah, the actual Hebrew word there is Baal, and it means to be a master, or to marry, or to have dominion over someone, or to be a husband. In fact, that Hebrew word is used some 16 times in the Old Testament, and it's only translated Beulah once in this specific location. Now, there's another word that we need to understand because we're talking about names and why they're important. Hephzibah means my delight in her. That's used twice in the Old Testament. The other time, it's used to refer to of Hezekiah's wife. And the root meaning of this is that you're guarding or taking care of something or you're safeguarding something. And so this word would be translated, its full meaning would basically mean someone who evokes delight and is guarding and protecting someone else. Invokes some type of delight and is guarding or protecting 
someone else. Now, there's the dry base introduction. So let me try and pull out what we're talking about here. God is speaking directly to Israel through his prophet Isaiah. And during this time, this is a time when Israel has fallen away from its first love, has begun to worship idols and follow other gods. And because of their disobedience, they are being punished. And their punishment is very, very severe. Not only has God withdrawn from them, they have been captured. Many parts of Israel have been captured and come under foreign kings. And large parts of the Hebrew people are entering into what we call today the diaspora. They're being shoved out of their homeland all over the world. And through the prophet Isaiah, God is reminding them of an important truth, that he still loves them, that he still desires them, that he still wants to protect them, and someday he will. And so we see in the opening parts of this passage that Israel is deserted and desolate. No one's there. No one wants it. No one is caring for Israel. But he, as opposed to being deserted and desolate, wants it to be Beulah, his marriage partner that he cares for. And he wants it to be Hephzibah, my delight. And so we see that what God is doing is telling the Hebrew people, while you have gone astray and done things you do not want to do, and the result that I do not want you to do, I'm sorry, and the result is that you've been scattered around, your country is desolate, that you're worshiping false gods, his desire for the people of Israel is that they would be as close to him as a spouse, that he could love them to protect them and care for them as we see in the marriage relationship. And by doing that, using these names, he is signifying to these people, to the Jewish people, that they have a second chance for a new beginning if they would but turn back to him. Now, last time I preached on names, I read Revelation 2.17. Let me read that again. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And yes, that's a transliteration. Better would be, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to those who are called out. Well, who does the calling? The Spirit. Those who are saved. You see, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about a denomination. We're certainly not talking about a building. We're talking about those who have been called out of the world unto the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I really wish the translation would use that because I think it would change our view on things. Sorry, let me start again. Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the ecclesia. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, I told you, we know Sister Beulah by her name that her parents gave her which was one of the more popular names in the early 19-teens. <laughs> and she was named it. But the Lord has given her a name that we don't know. 
And naming, just as a way of reminding us, is an act of imposing some type of authority. And receiving a name dignitates some type of submission to that authority. We don't think about it that way, but it's true. That's why Adam named the animals. Who named Adam? God did. Who named Eve? Adam did. And so we see the line of authority very clearly in the naming of things. So let me try and summarize where we're at. I know this is a lot to keep up with, and it's kind of technical, but I think it's important. Throughout this whole passage, we see that God's desire is to find delight in Israel. His desire is to be translated to marry Israel, to guard and to protect her and to delight in her. And so the application to us today, as individual believers in Christ, it is still God's desire to find delight in us, to find delight in you, to have a relationship with you as you would a spouse, to guard, to guide, and to protect, and ultimately be delighted in how we love him back. That's what he wants. He doesn't want us to be forsaken. He doesn't want us to be cast out. He doesn't want us to be uh, desolate. He doesn't want us to worship idols. He wants a close, loving relationship that we can have through him. Let me read verse 4 in a different translation. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Isn't that beautiful when you stop and think about the desire the Lord has for us? It's absolutely beautiful. Another song that we sang at the funeral was a favorite of mine. And we'll sing it tonight or today at the end. Sweet Beulah Land. How many of you know that hymn? Let me read it to you. I'm kind of homesick for a country to which I've never been before. No sad goodbyes will be there spoken for time won't matter anymore. And the chorus is Beulah Land, I'm longing for you. And someday on thee I'll stand when my home shall be eternal, Beulah land, sweet Beulah land. Second verse says, I'm looking now across the river where my faith will end in sight. There's just a few more days to labor, then I will take my heavenly flight. I see the lights, I hear the singing, a brand new song of joy divine. My soul rejoices just in knowing that soon these pleasures will be mine. And so the author here is capturing the idea that we're talking about bueling. Now, he is referring to it as or signifying that it's heaven in some way. And that's not necessarily exactly what the scriptures are saying, but it certainly is an idea that's captured in the scriptures. The idea that we can live our entire lives striving to be close to God, allowing him to be the one who 
captures us, who takes care of us, who delights in us. And we're always going to mess that up. But at some point, when we go to heaven, that will be perfectly completed. And we can, without the sin that weighs us down, without the body that condemns us, we can in spirit be with Him who is our Savior, living forever in perfect harmony with Him. And so, in a sense, it is okay to say Beulah Land is like looking forward unto marriage, where, unto heaven, where we have finally the perfect union. But you may wonder again, where this song actually come from? Well, maybe you don't ask, but I'll assume you do, and say I'm glad you did. How many of you have ever heard of John Bunyan? Oh, this is a really serious problem. You all need to have heard of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was an unbelievable man of God who was cast into prison and wrote, I think this is like the second or third best-selling book of all time, literally after the scriptures. We need to study this. In it, he describes an allegory, a journey of Christian, if you will, out of sin into salvation, through life, and on his way to heaven. It is full of scripture, full of meaning, and a wonderful, wonderful book to read. So let me read you what John Bunyan wrote about Beulah Land. It's entitled, The Pilgrims Reach Beulah. Now I saw in my dream that by this time the pilgrims were got over the enchanted ground and entered into the country of Beulah, whose air was very sweet and pleasant. By way lying directly through it, they solaced themselves there for a season. Yea, here they heard continually the singing of birds, and saw every day the flowers appear on the earth, and heard the voice of the turtle doves in the land. In this country the sun shineth night and day, Wherefore, this was beyond the valley of the shadow of death, and also out of the reach of the giant despair. Neither could they from this place so much as see Doubting Castle. Here they were within sight of the city they were going to. Also here men met some of the also here met them some of the inhabitants thereof. For in this land the shining ones commonly walked because it was upon the borders of heaven. In this land also, the contract between the bride and the bridegroom was renewed. Yea, here, as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so doth their God rejoice over them. They had no want of corn or wine, for in this place they met with abundance of what they had sought for in all their pilgrimage. Here they heard voices from out of the city, loud voices saying, Say ye to the daughters of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him. Here all the inhabitants of the country called them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. Now as they walked in this land, they had more rejoicing than in parts, more remote from the kingdom to which they were bound. And drawing near to the city, they had yet a more perfect view thereof. It was builded of pearls and precious stones. Also the streets thereof were paved with gold, so that by reason the natural glory of the city and the reflection of the sunbeams upon it, Christian with desire fell sick, hopeful that he had, 
a fit or two of the same disease, wherefore they, wherefore here they lay by it a while, crying out because of their pangs. Let me translate this just real quickly for you. This is the journey of two men who come to know the Lord on their way to heaven, the city, ultimately. And they get just outside of it, and they can see the glory of it, and they are sick with desire to get there. I'm longing for. They want nothing more than to get to that holy city. Why? Not because of the gold, not because of the pearls, but because it reunites them as in a marriage contract with their maker. And that should be our desire as well. Now, on their journey, I obviously can't read you the whole thing. On their journey, they go through the castle of despair, as we talked about, and the giants of doubt, and all these things throughout their lives that claw them down, and they are making that journey closer and closer and closer until they're finally in Beulah land, and they can observe heaven just on the edge. And it says they're sick with desire. You ever been sick with desire to want something? I think our dear sister was. Oh, for years she'd ask me, why am I still here? I want to go home. I don't know why she was here. The only thing I could ever tell her was because we need you to pray for us and we need your testimony. So in this allegory, Beulah Land is just before heaven. And he says, let me read one more time. In this land, there's also the contract between the bride and the groom was renewed. Yea, here, as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so does God rejoice over them. Our natural state is to be deserted and desolate. Just like the city of Jerusalem was in Isaiah's time. But God desires better for us. He desires us to be married, Beulah. Because he delights in and protects us, Hezbollah. And we see the power of these two words in this concept that the Hebrews would have instantly gotten, that we had to take now 15 minutes just to understand the beauty that's within here. These words have power and purpose. God is telling us something. He is demonstrating something for us that he desires for us to understand. There is something better. And I can't think of anything more important or appropriate to say on Father's Day. Men, current fathers, and future fathers. Do you delight in your wife? Do you safeguard your wife? Do you take care? Of your wife. Do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? It's tragic to say that many men fail miserably at this. And we often leave our wives and our children deserted and desolate. And we often treat our marriage vows that we took before God is nothing. Thus we fail to care for the ones the Lord has blessed us with and given us care over. 
But even more tragic than this, when we fail to do these things, when we fail to delight, when we fail to safeguard, when we fail to take care of, and when we fail to love, we fail to give the worldly example that we are bound to do between God's love for us. It is deeper than our family. It is deeper than my responsibility to my wife and to my children because how I live my life in relationship to them is an example of how God loves us. And so many of us have messed that up for so long, we can't even hardly do it. And it's absolutely tragic. So this is a call For those of you who've done this, well, well done. For those who need to do better, this is an encouragement to do better. And for those of us who are in between or not men and husbands, it's an encouragement for us to understand what marriage is supposed to be the image of. We have to find examples of this. We have to live into it. The sweet Beulah land, we should long for it for two reasons. One, it's the completed union between Christ and us. It's what it represents. The marriage, the completed union between me and my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is personal as it is between a husband and a wife, between one and one. It is desire for us, for each other. It is intimate. It is deep. And two, we should desire Beulah Land because it is the guarding and delight over those to which we have been given. We should guard and delight over those we have been given. And of course, that includes our children and our loved ones. And until we complete this task to borrow from the hymn, We have a few more days to labor. Sister Buell had 87 years to labor. Didn't I just say she was 100? She wasn't saved until she was 13. So really, she's only 87 years old. Because she experienced a new birth... At the age of 13, another church just over there, that changed her entire life because she became the new creature. That's the day I think she got the new name that no one knows yet. That's written on the white tablet that only God knows that he will call her by her name on the appropriate time and day. She is Beulah to us now. She is something different to him. And she leaned into the wind. She leaned into the spirit to love him for all that she could. And she, by and large, was successful at that and is a model for us. And we should look to her. Homesick for the perfect union, the perfect marriage between us and God. Knowing that until we get there, we are not perfect Knowing that this world is not my home, this is not my country, we are made for something better. We are made for a perfect union with God. And so while we are here, we are to live into and love Jesus Christ, and we are to model that love to other people. 
1 Corinthians 16 says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. There's five things. Be watchful. Stand firm. Over and over again in Scripture, if you look, we're just told to stand. Talks about putting on the armor of God. You put on the armor of God and God doesn't say go fight. He says just stand there. Our job is simply to stand against the devil. We cannot beat him. We will not beat him. It is God alone who has the authority and the power to do that. I am simply to be watchful and to simply stand for him, to stand for the truth. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. I just want to pause real quick. In case some who are listening find what I'm saying not appropriate anymore. Which I don't really care, other than I want you to listen to me. When I said earlier that this word could be translated as guardianship, safeguarding, taking care of somebody, we bristle at that. We don't like the idea that a man has authority over a woman or is to take care of her. And many men, listen to me closely, have taken that completely out of context and way too far. Because at the same token, that care is to be the same love that Jesus Christ had. Act like a man. Take on the duties that God has given you as a man. Lead your family. Lead your children. Lead your wife. Lead your church. Lead your Sunday school group. Lead at work. Lead wherever you are as a man. Do not apologize for it and do not back down for it, but do understand what it means. Be strong and let all that you do be done in love. This is our sacred duty. Our sacred duty. Not to rest until, as this verse says, until the righteousness goes forth as brightness. To be the lamp that burns. As it says in verse 3, because someday, catch this, the Lord will display his people as a king will display a crown. Thou shalt be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem, which is a royal crown, in the hand of thy God. When we stand like men, when we love and lead our children, when we love and lead our wives, when we stand for the truth, we are like a crown that a king proudly displays as his possession before all who come before him. That's what we get to live into. We're never going to get there but we literally ought to die trying. It ought to be until we get to Beulah land, until we finally get the completed marriage, this is the goal of our life, is to live into this, to know Him and to be known by Him. To strive for that perfect union between us and Him so that He can hold us proudly before all who come before Him and say, look at my servant. 
Let us therefore act like men. By delighting in our wives and our children, by waiting and laboring just a few more days until we take our heavenly flight so that we are the lamp that burneth and a crown of glory in his hand. And perhaps understanding these words and understanding the context will help us understand why we sing Sweet Beulah Land.